All right, join me in your Bible, if you would, please, this morning in the book of Acts and chapter number 11. Acts chapter number 11. And we'll look at this great, great passage of Scripture. Acts chapter number 11. So during the uh, Rona pandemic, I foolishly made the decision to take up running. Anybody else gain the COVID-19? Well, I figured maybe I could kind of sweat some of that out, right? So I took up running. And, and what I found out after I took up running is that I really, really hate to run. And uh, nobody, nobody that runs, nobody likes to run, okay? Just, just understand, nobody likes to run. Have you ever seen anybody like jogging with a happy expression, a peaceful expression? No, they all look like they're about to cry, right? But if you do run, you get to judge other people that don't run. And really, that's all I'm interested in. So, um, but the thing about running is, is that running is really, really simple. All you're doing is walking fast. That's all you're doing. You don't have to join a gym. You don't have to learn the difference between a straight leg deadlift and a Romanian deadlift and a regular deadlift. You just go run. But while running may be simple, running certainly is not easy. Because when you run, you get short of breath. If you run a lot, you get sore, you get tired. Sometimes it even makes your back hurt for whatever unknown reason. And it stretches you. But what happens as you run a little bit this week, you can run just a little bit more next week. And then a month from now, you can run a little bit further and even a little bit quicker. So while running may be simple, it certainly is not easy. And I think that it's really no wonder that the Bible compares our walk with Jesus to a run. Hebrews chapter number 12 and verse number 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we need to lay aside every weight, the sin that holds us back and drags us down, and we need to run with patience the race that is set before us. You see, you don't just have a walk with Jesus. You have a run with Jesus. And running with Jesus is very, very simple. But y'all, it's not always easy, is it? Because running with Jesus will stretch you. Running with Jesus sometimes leave you, leaves you with an ache. It feels like you're being forced beyond what you are able. And some of you I know are feeling that right now. You're feeling like Jesus is pulling you beyond your comfort zone. He's really good at that. And you feel like Jesus is maybe opening up new doors for you. And you're not sure you're ready to step through them. Maybe Jesus is confronting Sin in your life that's just been a part of your life forever that until recently never even bothered you. But now it seems like you can't get away from it. But then there's some of y'all, and this is who I'm really worried about today. Some of you are not being stretched. You're not growing. To put it in terms of running, you're just making the same lap over and over and over again. But I think that if we follow Jesus, if we're really going with him, then we're going to keep growing with him. To keep going following Jesus is to keep growing as a follower of Jesus. And what you're going to see in Acts chapter number 11 is the story of a man who's been following Jesus for a long time, our old buddy Simon Peter. And even though he's been going for a long time as a follower of Jesus, you still see him growing as a follower of Jesus. Let's read this together, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now there were apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, and they heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You 
went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And as these brothers accompanied me, we entered into the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And I began to speak. And as I spake, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the Spirit and the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Acts chapter number 11 is a monumental passage of Scripture. In fact, in Acts chapter number 10 and Acts chapter number 11, you kind of find the message of the Bible and the mission of God at a crossroads. And everything that has come before seemingly begins to change direction as God's purposes in the world expand. And that happens through the events that Peter recounts here in Acts chapter 11, which are the events that occurred in Acts chapter number 10. So in Acts chapter number 10, the apostle Peter has been instrumental in the salvation experience and the conversion of the very first Gentile convert, a man by the name of Cornelius. Now here's why this is so important, y'all, all right? Up until Acts chapter number 10, Christianity was a Jewish movement made up of Jewish people that used Jewish languages and Jewish scriptures written by Jewish prophets about a Jewish Messiah, and it all happened in a very, very Jewish place with very, very Jewish leaders. But then all of a sudden, that changes in Acts chapter number 10 with the conversion of Cornelius and his family, and now the church understands that the movement of Jesus is not just a movement for our people, it's a movement for all people. And that's a good lesson for us to remember today, isn't it? That everybody in heaven's not going to look like me. And that's good for them. And everybody in heaven's not going to talk like me. But God's family has people from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different colors, and a lot of different languages. And that all begins with the conversion of this man by the name of Cornelius. So, in chapter number 10, and what happens in Acts chapter 11 is Peter explains Acts 10 to the church. And so, we've kind of got to go back and forth between Acts 10 and 11 this morning, but we can do that. I believe in us. Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to Cornelius, who is a centurion. A centurion is a, a high-ranking army officer. This is a successful man, a man of means, a man of war, a man of respect. He is a hero to the Roman people. 
But he's stationed in the town of Caesarea, in the Jewish town, the, the town in Israel, Caesarea. And while he's stationed in Caesarea, even though he's Italian, evidently, somehow while he was there, he kind of got burnt out on the emperor worship that was part of the Roman military. He got just bored with the worship of the Roman gods. And he began to see through all of that and realize there was no substance to it. And he becomes drawn into the worship of the God of Israel. The Bible says that he's a devout man in verse number 2 of chapter 10. And he fears God with all his household. When the Bible says that Cornelius feared God, that is not just a, a moral or a theological designation. But God-fearers were an actual class of people in first century Judaism. And what a God-fearer was, was a Gentile who believed in the God of Israel, believed in the scriptures of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and believed that this was the truth for the world. But they hadn't taken the last final step, which would involve for a man being circumcised. And so he's kind of spiritually half in, half out. He's kind of a seeker. He kind of knows the truth. He's still trying to figure some things out. And I think that from Cornelius' life, we can learn two very, very important lessons I want to give you very quickly. The first one is this. Cornelius is a good man, but good people still need Jesus. He was a man of prayer. He was a devoted man. He was a man active in his community and a respected man. And sometimes it's possible for us that being, to think that being good is good enough. Even to think I go to church and I, I pray and I, I, I take some principles from the Bible and incorporate them in my life. Or even if I distance myself from Christianity, I still treat people right. I'm a moral person. My life is together. I make good decisions and I'm ethical in my business dealings and on and on and on. But no matter how good we are, none of us are so good that we don't need God's grace. And sometimes we want to be good so that we don't have to humble ourselves and come to God and say, the only hope I have is you. But also from the life of Cornelius, please learn, please learn that if we are responsive to the truth that God gives us, he will always give us more truth. Cornelius doesn't have all the facts yet. He doesn't have all the information about Jesus and about God's work and God's plan of salvation in Christ. But he does respond to the truth that he has, and God gives him more truth. So today, if you feel like you don't have the answers, if you don't have it figured out, that's okay. Keep pursuing Christ. Keep pursuing God. Keep clinging to Him the best that you can, and He will give you faith and strength to cling to Him more. But while Cornelius prays, God answers. And the answer to his prayer, can you imagine, is Simon Peter. And Simon Peter is going to become instrumental in leading this man to the Lord. From a human perspective, Simon Peter is the reason this guy is going to be in heaven. You're going to meet him. And not only is Simon Peter instrumental in leading him to the Lord, but Simon Peter is also instrumental in explaining this massive shift to the church in Acts 11 that seems very, very resistant to it. And so what I want you to see in this text today is the Apostle Peter as somebody who knows Jesus. He's been walking with Jesus for a long time, but he's still growing. He's still maturing. He's still developing. He's still, I hate to use this word, but he's still evolving. He's not stagnant. And so what I want to do from this passage of Scripture is I want to give you three prayers that you can pray based upon Peter's experiences in Acts chapter number 10, 11, and some other places that really uh, are born out of the repercussions of Acts 10. The first prayer that I think you should be praying 
And I think you should pray these prayers every day. The first one is this. Dear Lord, let me be teachable. Lord, let me be teachable. In Acts chapter number 10, Peter is staying at the home of a man by the name of Simon the Tanner. Simon the Tanner. Now, a tanner is not somebody who sprays you orange to get you ready for the beach. A tanner is somebody who, some of y'all know, felt some conviction on that. That's okay. But a tanner is somebody who turns animal skins into leather. So if you need a Bible or some cowboy boots or a belt or whatever, you have to have a tanner somewhere along the way. And Simon the Tanner lives in a place called Joppa. And I wish I had more time to dig into this, but one of the most famous, well-known, most beloved Bible stories in all of Scripture includes the city of Joppa. And if you think really, really hard, you remember it's the story of Jonah and the whale. That when God called Jonah, Jonah ran away to Joppa to get on a boat to go to Tarsus. And the reason Jonah ran away from God is because God wanted him to take the message of God's grace to the Gentiles. And now here's Peter at the same city, and God's going to call him to take the message of God's grace to the Gentiles. It's an amazing, and amazing coincidence. You'd almost think God wrote the Bible, right? So here's Peter at Joppa, and the Bible says that he goes up on the roof to pray. Closer to God that way, I guess. He goes up on the roof to pray, and then at the sixth hour, that's noon. All right, this is lunchtime. Something happens to Peter when he prays. It's in verse number 10. One of my absolute favorite verses in all of the Bible because it says that while Peter prayed, he was hungry. Y'all ever pray and get hungry? And your prayers are interrupted by your stomach's need for tacos or something? And you're trying to talk to the Lord and you're just in the, in the spirit praying and then all of a sudden you think, goodness, I'm starving to death. Well, you're not alone. That happened to Peter too. And Peter, while he's praying and while he's hungering, the Bible says that he sees a vision, a trance. And he sees something like a sheet coming down. And on that sheet is every kind of animal that you could imagine. It looks like the whole Birmingham Zoo has been spread out there. Anything that crawls, slithers, slinks, flies, or walks is on that sheet. And the voice from heaven says, Peter, take and eat. And what does Peter say? Uh, Lord? By no means, verse 14, for I'm, I've never eaten anything common. <clears throat> or reptiles, Lord? I, I don't, I'm not interested in a snake sandwich, Lord. I, and what Peter is doing here is Peter is speaking as a faithful, observant Jew who's obedient to the laws of kosher, right? You know about these things. You can find your pickles and stuff at the grocery store. They're kosher or whatever else. And I'm sure you know that there are certain things that the Jewish people couldn't eat and still uh, still won't eat those things that are restricted from their diet, things like barbecue and shrimp and catfish, like nobody in the Bible ever ate a meat lover's pizza because it has bacon on it. It's just unfathomable. But that's Peter. And so now the Lord comes to him and says, Peter, all of that's clean. There's nothing off the table, literally. And Peter says what? Lord, I don't think so. Now, it'll take three times, and Peter eventually does come around. But I just wonder... Is there anybody here today that shows that same kind of stubbornness in your relationship to God? The Lord tries to lead you in a new direction and you say, Lord, let me explain to you why this is a really bad idea. The Lord is trying to teach you something in your life. And you say, Lord, I know that can't be true because it's not something I've ever heard before. Lord, I, I, I just, 
Lord, I just think I'm more spiritual than you, and I don't think I can do this. That's what's happening to Peter. And yet Peter has to learn to be teachable. Can I suggest to you today that if you, as a follower of Jesus, have ever grown to the point where you are no longer teachable and you're no longer able to learn, then you've stopped growing. In fact, a disciple is a learner. And if you've stopped learning, you've stopped following Jesus. And the way the Bible talks about wisdom, places like Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 5, a mark of wisdom is not to know how much you know, it's to know how much you don't know. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. But like Peter, so often we think we've arrived, we think we've got it all figured out, and we stagnate in our spiritual lives so that nobody can ever teach us anything. Lord, please let me be teachable. Please let me be teachable. Second, Lord, please let me be useful. Peter ends up and he goes to, goes to Caesarea. The rest of Acts chapter number 10, Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius believes in the Lord, receives the Holy Spirit, and now he comes back to Acts chapter 11. And what you see in Acts 10 and 11 is you see Peter being useful to share the gospel and useful to explain the work of God in the Gentiles receiving the gospel to those Christians that were resistant to this change in their ministry approach. And I just, just want to point out to you quickly, and there, there's more that I would really, really like to say, but this is a monumental event in the history of the world. If you don't have Acts chapter number 10, and if the Jesus movement remains a Jewish movement, then you're not sitting here today. Understand that. And understand that even though they won't tell you this at Garndale High School, the reality is that you don't have a renaissance. Michelangelo is not painting the Sistine Chapel without Acts chapter 10. It doesn't happen. My name is Jesse. That is a Bible name. And the reason that I, of European descent, have a Bible name is because of what happened in Acts 10. Because the Jesus movement expanded beyond just Jewish people. And again, who is it, humanly speaking, that is at the center of God's plan and all of it? Peter. Think through this with me. Peter walked with Jesus personally for three years. Peter watched Jesus perform miracles. Watched Jesus raise the dead. Saw Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Saw Jesus banish demons from afflicted people. Probably witnessed to some extent, the crucifixion of the Lord certainly was a witness to the Lord's bodily resurrection. Talked with Jesus on both sides of the cross and both sides of the grave. Was standing there outside of Jerusalem when Jesus ascended. Peter stood on the day of Pentecost full of the Holy Spirit and preached. And 2,000 people are swept into the family of God. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on the way to the temple. They grab a crippled man by the hand and he's able to gain a new set of legs. And Peter responds to that and preaches and fires. 5,000 people are swept into the family of God. But for all he had learned, for all he had seen, for all he had felt, for all he had experienced, God was not done with Peter. And that fires me up today because I'm preaching to some people who think that God has done everything he's going to do in their lives. You think I've been singing in the choir so long, I've been teaching Sunday school so long, I've been deaconing for so long, surely God is not going to break any new ground with me. Hear me today, as long as you've got breath in your lungs and as long as you've got a pulse in your neck, our God is not done with you. This is a great lesson for us. That for some of us, the greatest work God has for us is still to come. 
still to come. For some of you, God saved you 40 years ago to share the gospel with somebody you haven't even met yet. And you're going to change a family by sharing the gospel with them. And great-grandchildren that you will never meet are going to be affected because of your faithfulness and you haven't even ran into them yet. Don't give up. God is not done with you. Say, the best is behind me. God is not done with you. The worst is behind me. God is not done with you. I was reading this this week, and I will belabor this point because I like it. And I'm not preaching tonight, so why not, right? It's a funny thing about being a pastor. People complain the preacher only works an hour a week. And then if you actually preach for an hour, they get mad about that. The people of Israel come out of Egypt. They walk through the wilderness for two years. They come to the borders of the promised land there at Kadesh Barnea. And they form a committee. Twelve men, twelve spies are going to go into the land. You remember this story? They come back with their report. This time we'll be seated in conference. We're going to hear from our committee on spying out the land. The chairman gets up and he says, this land's full of giants. If we go in there, those giants are going to demolish us. They're going to demolish our children. There's, there's no way. We need to turn around and go back. We, Egypt, we've got to do something else. We cannot go in and conquer the land that God promised us. And Caleb and Joshua, they're the lone dissenters, right? And they say, No! God promised this land to Abraham 400 plus years ago. He brought us out of Egypt to go and take it. And with God's help, it doesn't matter. If hell and half of Georgia stands in our way, we will take it according to the promise of God. But they get outvoted. That'll happen sometimes. And So what does God do? God says, all right, you're going to walk around the wilderness for 40 years. And he says, every member of this faithless generation over 20 years old you're going to die in this wilderness. And you'll never see the promised land because of your lack of faith. Except for two. And who were the two over 20 that the Lord said, you'll see it? Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb just kind of disappears, doesn't he? Joshua leads the people after Moses dies. He's got a whole book in the Bible named after him. Brings them over the Jordan River, conquers Jericho, steamrolls the Canaanites. And then in Joshua chapter number 14... Here comes old brother Caleb, 80 plus years old. And he says, Joshua, 40 years ago you were there at Kadesh Barnea when God's man Moses promised me that I would have this mountain. And he said, I can go out and fight these giants on top of this mountain and I can come back. And so he said, Joshua, I want my mountain, an octogenarian in his 80s, said, I am not through yet. Some of y'all need to retire from your spiritual retirement and say, God, I am not through yet. And Lord, even if the only thing that I can do in my church is sit in the nursery and rock a baby for the glory of God and pray for the choir and pray for the preacher, I'm going to do it until you take me on to worship you. Somebody say amen because I'm right about it. Lord, help me to be useful. Help me to be useful. I want to be useful until my very last day. Until the Lord takes me on. Lord, let me be useful. But Lord, my last prayer that I'll give you to pray and we'll finish. Lord, let me be humble. 
Lord, let me be humble. The church in Acts chapter 11, they're not necessarily humble about this. They struggle to figure out how God's grace could go to Gentiles. But that's really the whole lesson, the vision of the the sheet with the animals is to learn that there are no unclean foods and there are no unclean people. That's the lesson. Those Jewish people would look at Gentiles like us. Goyim, they would look at us and they would think we were unclean. We were beyond God's grace. We were unwelcome. Now they realize those people who aren't like us that we might judge the Spirit of God can make a home inside of them just like He did us. And so they rejoice in this. And Peter rejoices in this for a while, and everything seems to be good. But at the end of Acts chapter number 11, there's a handful of guys that aren't named in Scripture, heroes in the Bible, that go out to plant a church in Antioch. And Peter, we know from Galatians 2, goes to visit the church at Antioch. And he's got the memo, y'all. Nothing's off the table. Man, it's ribs, pulled pork. Fried catfish and hot sauce. Praise God. You guys, hey, y'all come sit down. There's a place at God's table for everybody. But then the Apostle Paul comments about this in Galatians 2, verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul and Peter having a little tift. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. And separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Let me paint the picture for you. The picture is, Peter would sit down with the Gentiles, he would fellowship with them. There's a spot for everybody at God's table. There is no unclean food, there are no unclean people. Until the buttoned up, suited up, Pharisees came into town. And the Pharisees, who were gatekeepers of the things of God, Peter was afraid of them. And so when the Pharisees came into town, Peter said, Guys, I can't eat with y'all this week. Our Thursday night barbecue's off, okay? And the reason was because Peter was afraid of what somebody else would say about him. And he was afraid of the opinions of some people more than he was in tune to the needs of other people. He was afraid of some people more than he loved others. And Paul comes to Antioch and he says, Dude, do you not realize that the way you're behaving is out of line with the gospel? He says to him in verse number 14, Galatians 2, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He said, Peter, you're being hypocritical, bro. Why are you living in fear of other people? Why are you being discriminatory to other people? This English is a heck of a language sometimes, isn't it? Why are you you being racist to these people, Peter? Because we're all brought to Jesus the same way. We're all saved by the same grace. And in this moment, Peter, who has done so much, is still learning, still growing, still confessing his sins, and still aligning his heart to the truth of the gospel. Folks, I assure you today that no matter how long you've been saved, no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, there's still places in your life that are dark. There's still sins you struggle with. 
For some of you, it's the same sins that Peter did in Gala- had in Galatians. You fear the opinions of other people more than you fear God. And that is more real in your heart, what they might say, than what God has said in Christ. For some of you, you struggle with sins of prejudice and racism, the way Peter does in a very subtle way here in Galatians chapter number 2. For some of you, you struggle to understand, like the church in Acts 11, how God could ever do a new thing. And you resist that in your life, in your church. The point is, all of us, as the people of God, need to be humble. We need to be praying, Lord, keep me humble. As we approach the Lord's table and have communion today, we need to remind ourselves that we are saved by a body that was broken for us and blood that was shed for us. And if these things signify our standing before God, then that means that I am saved and I'm right with God, not because of what I've offered, but because of what Jesus has offered. And if that's true, then you understand today that I can't be proud of anything. Because I'm just coming as a sinner who needs grace and who has received grace.